Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner 3 days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 400 647. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in the day, sure. And this is honestly, this worked out like this. It wasn't what happened, it just the, the way it rolled and the way it ha- happened. The writer for today's story is our very own newly appointed editor, Fred. Yes, he goes by Frederick Gio Heimbach on in writing terms, but yeah, just a little hint, it is our Fred Heimbach. And funny enough, when I put out the message, you know, like I was looking, Fred said he'd just getting like a point, like getting a, a story, you know, the first one accepted as well. So, yeah, that's how it rules. That's how it rules. So I'll tell you what's coming this show. Like I say, we have Fred's fi- story, Fingers. The story first appeared in analog fiction and science fiction, analog science fiction, in fact, possibly in 2019, January. It's narrated by Drew Mallory. That's coming up. Then we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. We're looking back at genre history. That's all coming in this show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now, a couple of things. couple of things. The Mandalorian is absolutely fantastic. Oh, just... I'm I'm just loving it, absolutely loving it, and I, and I struggled with the first season, the first couple of episodes, but this one, yes, yes, it was just fantastic, and another one of my favourite actors, Katie, is it Katie Stackoff, who, who was in the, oh, forget, I should have had all notes, you know, man, what was that science fiction, Answers on a Postcard, the best science fiction TV programme of... Kind of ever when it came out. Oh, can I? I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna look at it in Google. You, you know who Katie Stack off is. Anyways, she's in it. This one, and it's just. I'm loving it. I'm absolutely loving it. I'm and it's to the point now. I'm kind of trying to savor it. I'm not golfing him. I'm just. I've, I've waited. I've waited about two days to play this this episode. So it's, it's amazing. Then another little bit of just a heads up, give you a little heads up, is Jeremy. Jeremy Sal got, got in touch with us. And just to say, Jeremy says, just to let people know, you know what I mean? I've got my book out if anyone's interested in it. So don't forget, our old editor, actually, old, old editor now, God, Jeremy, man, it's, it's been a while ago. His Stormblood is out. Now, this is a, a dark space opera about an alien DNA that makes users permanently addicted to it, adrenaline and aggression. And it's out by Galance in the US and the UK, and including audiobook as well. So do look out for that. There is a sequel coming, Blind Space, which will be out next year as well. And if you bought that, Jeremy says he'll love you forever. <laughs> I'll put some links on for Jeremy's book there. Do go and support him. Do you know what I mean? He's kind of just fantastic that what he's doing. Do you know what I mean? Just kind of, it's always. It was always, in, you know, he was destined. He was destined, and I knew it. I could see it. You know what I mean? I could see it. So anyway, Jeremy, well done, lad. Keep it, keep going. Just keep on writing them. It's just strange times that, 
who would have thought, you know what I mean, when you had these dreams and aspirations that you'd be in the middle of a pandemic? Bloody hell. Anyway, look after yourself, Jeremy. Right, so the main fiction, like I say, this is Fred, who is now our editor, is kind of doing this. I'll give you a little bio, which is the same bio I read for him when I was introducing him. Frederick Geo Heimbach lives a pub fiction life and takes notes. His family lives with him warily in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He is the author of two novels of satirical alternative history, finest science fiction horror stories at Analog Science Fiction and Fact and Mysterion Online and other places. And like I mentioned, Fred is our newly appointed editor. And like I say, he's He's so close to kind of dusting off there and saying bye to, to Gary there and pushing off in his own direction as well. So, welcome aboard, Fred, lad. And the story is narrated by Drew Mallory. Drew Mallory is a PhD research psychologist on weekdays who studies social institutions can protect their most vulnerable members. On weekends, however, all bets are off. His voice acting and speculative fiction embrace the uncomfortable, the weird and the uncanny. Drew spends his time mostly in Thailand, but we can contact him directly by stating his name thrice in the dark in the mirror anywhere. I, I love that. Anywhere. Well, <laughs> in Marks and Spencer's clothes department. <laughs> Drew, thank you so much. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Fingers by Frederick Garrow Heimbaugh. Read by Drew Mallory. Falling asleep was always so hard, because bedtime was when Roger would tell me and Foxglove about the fingers. Every night we would lie by the stove, shivering, and the moment would come and he'd let us cover ourselves with blankets. Then we'd listen, eyes wide. Roger would tell us how him and Jessica used to live in a city, back before me and Foxglove were born. They lived like regular folks and didn't know any better. They looked regular, they lived in a regular home, They ate regular food and had jobs like everyone else. But then, all over the place, the fingers started coming. Here's the thing about fingers. They come at you through the ground where you can't see them. They might be on your land and you never know it. When they grow, they reach out like fingers, skinny ones, or like the roots of trees. It's like they're alive, but they're more than alive because you can't kill them. Fingers are always looking for you. They look for people's houses and grow right into the foundations. Foundations are hard as stone and are what houses sit on. You'd think the fingers wouldn't grow into foundations, but the fingers look for tiny cracks. After that, the fingers grow up inside the walls. Even then, they're still hidden. You could be living in your house and surrounded by fingers and not even know it. That's what makes fingers so scary. Roger would tell us how he found a man that sold him special paint he put on the foundation that would keep the fingers out. It cost a lot of money. Then other people said the paint didn't do any good and the man was a liar. The fingers didn't care. They could grow right through the paint. Roger and Jessica decided to dig a ditch around the house. Some people said a deep ditch might stop the fingers. Roger dug the ditch even deeper than what the people said. Every day, he looked for fingers in the ditch. He never saw any. He got a generator for electricity, and they drank water from bottles so the fingers wouldn't have clues how to find them. Roger told us how one morning, Jessica woke up early. She went to the room where the refrigerator was. She screamed. Roger jumped out of bed. He saw Jessica pointing. She saw a finger. It had poked its way out of the wall and grown into the side of the refrigerator. It had grown under the ditch into the foundation and up the wall, and they never knew. Roger ran outside and poked around with the shovel, and sure enough, he found fingers. He tried cutting them. He tried burning them with fire. They were so tough, he couldn't break them or burn them. He tried tearing them apart with his hands, but they are really skinny and they cut his fingers. Roger pulled the refrigerator away from the wall. It was really hard to do, and they found out why. They saw hundreds of fingers, maybe a thousand, crawling through the wall to grab the refrigerator. Jessica started screaming again. 
The fingers had been spying on them, keeping track of their electricity, noticing if they ever left the refrigerator door open too long, even counting their food and whether it was unhealthy. The fingers looked inside Jessica's computer, too, which is the part I don't understand. But Roger says it was the worst. Roger told us that him and Jessica decided right then that they had to leave. Moving to another house was no good. The fingers would find them. They knew that they had to go live in the woods somewhere, away from everybody. They knew they would have to get really smart about hiding from the fingers. The fingers are really tough. People said fingers could never be broken, but Roger figured out how to make horseradish juice to dissolve them. Jessica found people who knew the fingers were bad. She learned lots of stuff from those people. How to live in the woods, how to grow your own food, what tools and stuff the fingers can't see. They said people had to live in small groups, and Roger taught them how to make horseradish juice. So, Roger told us. That's how we live. We live here in the woods alone. We stay prepared so we can pack up and move anytime. But if we're smart, the fingers will never find us. Roger always ended the story by making us repeat three things we had to do. Dig ditches. Search the ground for fingers. Keep horseradish juice handy. Then he'd tell us to keep an eye out for other stuff that might bring the fingers. There's the black pipes that carry water. Then there's the pavement that bubbles up out of the ground and grows into roads. After the story, Roger would go to sleep. He was always tired. Foxglove and me, we would lie there with no sleep in our eyes. I would think about the fingers, think about them growing through the floor of the yurt and through my futon into my head. One time I put the horseradish juice in my hair to keep the fingers from growing into my brain, but Roger got really mad. So I would take my horseradish jar, the one I wore on a cord around my neck, and set it next to my head. I hoped the fingers would smell the juice and stay away. One day came when Roger woke me up extra early. Roger had told me I was to start working for the new neighbors. That way, we could trade for things we didn't have. I was happy because I wouldn't have to do math problems with Roger. Roger gets so mad because I get math problems wrong. When he was my age, he taught himself calculus and stuff. I guess I'm just not smart. I ate a quick breakfast of carrots and left before Roger helped Jessica get up. I was so happy I ran through the woods, even though I wasn't late. There was no breeze that morning, so the coldest air had collected in the low places of the ground, and I felt it on my belly as I ran. I could see the neighbors' new towers before I got there. Four were shiny and skinny, and two shorter ones were brown and dull. They made me feel scared. I decided Roger must have seen them and known they didn't have anything to do with the fingers. I went to the new buildings the neighbors had put up, and all of a sudden I felt really shy. Roger taught us to avoid people. He said other people did things different from us and wouldn't trust us if they saw us. But Roger knew these neighbors. They had come here to get away from the fingers, just like us. I found Mr. George and shook his hand like Roger told me to. I told him Roger couldn't come because someone always had to stay with Jessica, who was really sick. She'd been sick ever since Foxglove was born, which I can barely remember. Mr. George ran a big business. The guys who worked for him were his sons and nephews. The oldest were grown-up men, and the youngest were my age. The young ones only worked half the day. They did school with Mrs. George. All the guys wore clothes that were blue and brown leather shoes that looked heavy. When they saw me for the first time, they put their hands over their mouths like someone told a big joke or something, and Mr. George got mad but tried not to show it. He said, We're going to make Valley know he's welcome here, right? And the boys nodded with their hands still on their mouths. Mr. George put me to work in the forge. It's got flying sparks that can burn you, so I had to wear a leather apron. Roger would not have liked that at all, but Mr. George made me, and Roger had said I should do what Mr. George said. It rubbed against my skin and bothered me, and I wondered how the others could stand it. 
Mr. George made me wear the heavy shoes, and those were worse. I learned to heat the metal until it was orange-yellow. Others did the pounding and shaping. It was really hot. I liked it when guys tempered the glowing metal because watching it slide into the cool water made me feel cool too. I couldn't believe how much water they had around. I was glad for whoever was hauling it because I drank a lot. They had plenty of food for lunch. Mr. George said I didn't have to eat the meat. That was good because if Roger asked, I could say I didn't eat it. Before they ate, they said a poem about God. We sat around a big bench outdoors, just the guys and me. I think Mrs. George had decided her and the girls would eat in the house. I felt bad for that, but Roger had told Mr. George how we were, so I guess it wasn't my fault. After lunch, I went back to the forge. Late in the day, Mr. George sent me to work in the store. He could tell the heat made me really tired. I was glad to take off my apron. It was okay because the store was closed. Beyond the barns, Mr. George had a store with a big, wide dirt road leading up to it. Mr. George told me the road wasn't the kind that grows itself. He was really clear about that. I put stuff on shelves. I guess somebody forgot to lock the front door. I heard a car come up the dirt road. I peeked out. I had never seen a gasoline car before except in pictures. A young couple got out. The man's belt squeezed the fat around his middle in a way that made my stomach hurt. The woman wore something that was fuzzy like a blanket with a zipper that held the collar up high under her chin. I was circling my hands around my neck to feel what the collar was like when I heard the woman push the door. It swung open. I got a sick feeling like I always get when I remember too late something Roger told me to remember. I ducked behind a shelf wishing for some way to make myself skinny and invisible. The woman shouted, Are you still open? Charlie, one of Mr. George's sons, came in from the back room. We're not, but that's okay. I'll help you. I heard I could buy gasoline here. Charlie looked proud. That's right. All our fuels are refined by hand in small batches right here on site. It's a family business. What octane did you want? The man gestured out the window. What's best for that? George said, Is that a Mercedes? The man laughed a little. It's a Mercury Monarch. Wow, I never heard of those. Not many survived. This one was parked at my grandmother's shed for years. Charlie and the man talked about cars and stuff, how to fix them and keep rust off. This was bad. I was trapped inside the bird bath aisle. Worse, the woman took interest in the raw iron things. She came toward me. She was going to turn the corner and see me. She stopped and interrupted the men. I can hear you've got a generator running. Are you people refusers? No, ma'am, said Charlie. We tend to identify with the new authentics. Oh, I hope you're not offended. It's no problem. I heard her sandals scraping on the floor. Every muscle in my body was tight as a bowstring. She turned the corner. She looked at me. For a moment, it was like she couldn't even see me. Then she made a sound, like a laugh that you suck into your body. I tore out of there as fast as I could. I ran past Charlie and he shouted, Valley! Really mad. The man just snorted. I hid in the back room, wishing I had never come to Mr. George's. I heard the woman say, Now there's a refuser for sure. She giggled. I figured Mr. George would be really mad. But when Charlie told him later, he was more sorry than anything for me. At the end of the day, all the guys went down to the river to cool off. When they took off their clothes, I saw how white their skin was. When I set my jar on the riverbank, Mr. George asked what it was, so I told him. Mr. George looked at it for a while. He said, Roger has been out of touch too long. This is meant to dissolve the nanotubes, but they stopped making the fingers the old way. Too many people complained. He told me the juice was perooxidase. I had him repeat the word so I could remember it. Mr. George told me lots more how the fingers grow by getting carbon from the air and how they conduct electricity with graphite. Mr. George showed me graphite in a pencil he had. He said fingers were self-maintaining, which means they have tiny machines inside. 
so tiny you can't see, that fix them when they break and make them grow. Then he got real serious and wouldn't say anything for a while. And then he said, Valley, how's your mom doing? How's Jessica health-wise? And I didn't say anything. And we both sat there on the bank, not moving. And then he tried to say something. It'll be a long walk for you every day. And maybe, I mean, we've got plenty of room here. And if y'all wanted to move. But then he gave up and said, no, there's no way. And he didn't say anything. And I didn't say anything because I didn't know what he was saying. And I didn't know what to say. The guys were playing a game in the water with a ball. They were nice to me and asked me to be on a team. We all looked the same and they didn't care and it was the most fun I ever had. It got late and I walked home. In the woods, I heard something that made me stop. It sounded like a really big tree falling down. I found where it fell. There was a gap in the woods, like a meadow except narrow, like a line that went on and on. I saw fallen trees and freshly upturned dirt where the roots stuck up. The trees fell because their roots were cut. It wasn't anything natural. The gap was way too straight and the dirt was too smooth. Still, I wasn't suspicious, which was really dumb. I should have told Roger when I got home, but I didn't. I helped Roger and Foxglove make dinner. It was during cleanup time that the terrible thing happened. Roger sent me to fetch water. I was walking down the path when I saw some fine black threads across the path where the ground was hardest. For a moment, I didn't think anything about them. They didn't look like fingers at all. But they were the blackest things I've ever seen. And when I thought of that, I got really scared really quick. I dropped my bucket and yelled, Roger! Roger must have known from my voice that it was bad. He came running. He looked at the ground and yelled the words, Fingers! Roger clawed up the dirt where the fingers grew, not caring how hard it was. Give me your horseradish now! Roger is always impatient, but he was screaming, caring only about killing the fingers. He opened my jar too fast and the whole thing spilled. Roger said a word. I never found out what it means, but I know it must be something really bad. And then he called for foxglove. That's when I saw Roger wasn't wearing his own jar, and later when I thought of it, it made me mad. Foxglove got to us, and Roger practically choked her, getting the jar off her neck. He dripped little bits of the juice on the fingers. I remember what Mr. George said about the horseradish, so I pulled a finger out of the ground. Roger said, No, they'll cut right through you. He was wrong. When I pulled hard, the finger snapped. I never saw Roger so confused in my life. He pulled me away from the fingers, kind of angry, but not really. Then he yelled for a shovel. With the shovel, he could break through the nasty fingers that had spread out like spider webs. He cut a lot, but as he dug, he found fingers everywhere. After a while, Roger dropped the shovel. There were way too many fingers. He told Foxglove she would have to start packing alone. Foxglove was scared, but she didn't dare argue. Roger said he and me would have to go talk to Mr. George and find out what the story was. When we got back, we might need to move right away. So him and me went. Mr. George came out on the porch and had a long talk with Roger. I was kept away, but I could tell from their voices that they were really mad. Then Roger talked to me while Mr. George talked to his guys. Roger said Mr. George knew about a station that had grown on the other side of the river it was probably making the fingers grow in this area. Roger said Mr. George agreed they would have to take care of it. Roger said I was old enough to come. We set out for the station. It was Roger, me, Mr. George, plus his oldest sons. I guess Mr. George had different ideas about who was old enough. We each carried a jug filled with liquid that Roger told me I shouldn't splash on myself. Mr. George quietly told me it was harmless and that Roger should know that since he used to be a chemist, and a good one, too. We found the station. We had to cut our way through a black fence that had grown around it. Mr. George had a heavy cutter for that. 
There were fingers everywhere running in and out of these things on poles that looked like burdock prickers, only big. Mr. George showed us how to pry open the prickers. When he said so, altogether we emptied the jugs into them. The liquid bubbled up like foam on the top of the beer that Roger makes sometimes, shiny and smelling awful. Roger said not to breathe the stink. The liquid would fool the little machines so the fingers in the station would grow back into themselves until they were ruined. This would spread to all the fingers in the area. We would be safe for a while. Mr. George looked like he was in a hurry to go, but Roger blocked the hole in the fence. Everybody had to wait to see what he was going to say. He talked to me, but looked at Mr. George. I knew that look. Somebody had done something terrible, but I wasn't sure who. Valley, tell me the truth. Where does Mr. George get his water? He gets it out of big barrels. I mean, idiot, where does he get it originally? From the river? From a well? Mr. George said, leave the boy out of it. If you want to know, I'll tell you. I get it from a pipe. Roger gets angry a lot, but this was the first time I ever saw him. So angry, he couldn't talk. Mr. George spoke again. I never had any issue with using public water. My business would be impossible without it. You can be sure, though, we generate our own electricity. We're not on the grid, and we never have been. Roger hollowed. You think the pipes are safer than the grid? You think they don't have AI? The pipe intelligence is very limited. It doesn't collect information. Everything I've read... You've read? Read? You believe that stuff? Why do you think this station grew here, of all places, so soon after you arrived? You brought it here, lured it with your business and your pipes and your public water. Come on, Roger. You said you weren't a refuser. I said I wasn't comfortable with the term. You promised me you were off the grid. We are. I trusted you. We were friends. I started getting really worried then because Roger picked up the heavy cutter and pointed it at Mr. George. He kept talking. I can't believe I was so stupid. I should have known when I saw your buildings. No way you could have built them. They were grown. Parts of them were grown off-site. I never said otherwise. They were non-propagating by the time I brought them here. What I did say was, we're living off the grid. That's the honest truth. You brought the grid with you. People like you are disease. Mr. George just crossed his arms. His son did the same. Now Roger looked right at me. We're leaving. We'll go somewhere where we'll never see people like this again. Roger left and I followed. I was afraid to look back, but I did really quick. Mr. George's face was really hard. I guess anybody gets mad sometimes, even Mr. George. When we got back home, we finished packing up. Jessica was upset, and that made her more sick, but nobody said we should wait. We hiked through the night and the whole next day. It was really hard on Jessica, even though she rode in the one walking stroller we had, which was fully charged just by luck. We wouldn't have been able to haul our dumb carts very far at all, except we took to the higher ground where the trees thinned out. We didn't stop until we got to the top of a mountain. For our new home, Roger picked a big, flat patch of bare rock. I guess he hoped the fingers could never reach us there. We had a lot of work to do. Life got really hard. The river and gardens were far away. The nights were colder than ever. Foxglove was getting older, and her and me felt funny about looking at each other's bodies, but if Roger caught us covering ourselves up with blankets and stuff, he got mad. We worked so hard, we were all tired and mad. One day I was picking berries in the woods when Mr. George showed up. I was really scared, mostly because he surprised me, but also because I didn't know if he was our friend anymore. I decided to listen to what he had to say. That was a big mistake. He had a hard time telling me what he wanted. He told me how he found us from the smoke of our campfire, and he talked about the weather, but he gave up on that.
he said. Roger was right. I realize that now. I brought the fingers with me. Since then I've tried hard to fight them, but in the end I wasn't able to stay completely off the grid. So instead, I do things people say will make the fingers safer. I'm not like Jessica and Roger. Roger and me were friends in college. Great friends. Things change, though. People change. People get changed. He held out a tiny bottle. I know about Jessica's sickness. She's had it all her life. But it wasn't bad when I first knew her. It will only get worse. They have cures now, but it uses nanotech. Like the fingers. My heart jumped. The bottle looked just like it had plain water inside. I looked at it really close, and Mr. George said, The nanomechanics are so tiny they're invisible. He said, I want you to take this. I think Roger would say no, or I'd give it to him. I know what Jessica would say. You are going to have to decide what's right. I researched it, and I'm sure this medicine would help her a lot. Its propagation is strictly limited. The testing for this kind of stuff is really thorough. Anyway, she can't live long without it, that's for sure. He wrapped my fingers around the bottle. I'm sorry to put this all on you, Valley. I'm really sorry. You've just got to decide. We try to stay clean, and that's good. Stay clean. It sounds so simple. It turns out it takes a lot of wisdom to live it out. You're going to have to find that wisdom somehow. He patted my shoulder with his big soft hand. I'm rambling. God bless you, Valley. Then he left. I didn't know what to do with the bottle. I kept it hidden for days. Jessica was feeling really bad, and she got worse. Roger must have thought she was dying, because a day came, he had me and Foxglove come over, one at a time, to say goodbye. Jessica was weak, but she got me in a grip. Her nails dug into my arm, but I didn't say anything. I just sat there and cried. Jessica said, Valley, my darling... You're going to have to be really strong. That made me cry more, and I didn't feel strong at all. She said, You've got to help your pa now. Sometimes he can be so... I was afraid she was going to tell me what Roger was so, but she didn't. Instead, she said, Your pa gets tired of fighting the fingers all the time. When I was pregnant with Foxglove and got really sick... He wanted to give up, but I made him keep fighting. If you're strong, you can make him keep fighting, Valley. Tell me you'll be strong. I told her, I will, Ma. That's the only time I ever call her Ma. And she let me. After I was done, Foxglove went to see Jessica, and she couldn't stop crying. Then Roger couldn't stop crying, and I couldn't stop crying. I couldn't stand it, so I made up my mind. Jessica was still able to drink. I put Mr. George's medicine in a cup and gave it to her. Jessica fell asleep for a long time. When she woke, she felt better, and Roger gave her something to eat. The next day, she was a lot better. Roger was so happy. I never felt so happy and also so afraid at the same time. After that... Jessica got as strong as anyone and could do chores. Roger was the nicest he'd ever been to me. I stopped being scared of her dying, but I also stopped being glad. All I could think of was that Mr. George said the medicine was like fingers, but invisible. The fingers were inside Jessica, and I had put them there. I stopped eating, but that didn't last long. Roger started getting mad again, and he made me eat the food. By now, the fingers must be all over inside of me. Sometimes I can feel them. I try not to spread the fingers. I try wrapping my feet in leaves when Roger isn't around, and I wipe my armpits before I go into the yurt so my sweat doesn't drip. But it's no good. I've seen foxglove drop food on the ground, and I know it's growing in the dirt and the plants. It's growing inside her and Roger, too. Every night, Roger makes us listen to the story of the fingers. Afterwards... I lie there with no sleep in my eyes. The story makes me more scared than ever, so scared I'm almost crazy and I want to crawl right out of my skin. It's no good to watch out for the fingers. The fingers are invisible.
I can't stop the fingers. The fingers are here. The fingers are everywhere. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And there you go. Huge thank you to Fred. Thank you so much, lad. Andrew, it is an honour. Thank you indeed. Next up is, and I know Amy will be kind of, I'm, I'll put money on it. Amy will be loving The Mandalorian. I just know for a fact she'll just be giddy with it. You know what I mean? I bet she's rewatched them a dozen times. Amy, what have you got? Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. I purposefully waited to record my segment until after the U.S. election because I thought that might be an oasis of calm after the intellectual and emotional roller coaster of the election itself. And ha, how very naive I was. But at any rate, I'm here. <laughs> and I actually find what I wanted to talk to you about even more relevant, if that's possible, than it was when I first put my notes together. What I'd like to do today is share with you some thoughts that I shared recently in August of 2020. It was my honor and privilege to be invited to be a special guest to give a keynote talk at MythMoot, an annual speculative literature conference. This year, it was held online due to the coronavirus. And it was, again, my honor to be able to give a keynote talk there. I don't want to replicate the entire talk, but there is a portion of it that is both intensely personal and also directly related to what science fiction can accomplish in the world today. What one of the greater purposes of the genre can be. In short, I think this is a natural fit for looking back at genre history. So uh, thank you <laughs> for indulging me here as I talk about this. So the purpose, the guiding theme of the Mythmoot Conference this year was a quote from the immortal Anne Frank. As I'm sure you already know, Anne Frank was the author of what became The Diary of a Young Girl, in which she documented her life from 1942 to 1944, which she spent in hiding during the German occupation of the Netherlands in World War II. She and her family were Jewish, and they were in hiding from the Nazis, and eventually she became a victim of the Holocaust. In her writing, there is an amazing line, and that line became the theme for this Mythmoot conference. The line is, look at how a single candle can both defy and define the darkness. I've been doing a lot of thinking about that line. Look at how a single candle can both defy and define the darkness. 
I've been thinking about what that means today. I've been thinking about what that means in the context of speculative fiction, and in particular, science fiction. And this line made me think about one of the masters of U.S. science fiction, and for that matter, fantasy and horror as well. I'm thinking of Ray Bradbury, and that's appropriate. It was, in fact, this past August, 2020, that marked the 100th anniversary of Bradbury's birth. And I think he has a relevant point to make about how genre work can defy and define the darkness. He talked about this in The Art of Fiction number 203, which ran in Paris Review in 2010. In that, Bradbury says, I often use the metaphor of Perseus and the head of Medusa when I speak of science fiction. Instead of looking into the face of truth, you look over your shoulder into the bronze surface of a reflecting shield. Then you reach back with your sword and cut off the head of Medusa. Science fiction pretends to look into the future, but it's really looking at a reflection of what is already in front of us. Now, what does this mean? Perseus, the hero, is in search of Medusa, to slay Medusa the Gorgon, and when mortals looked on Medusa's face, they were immediately turned to stone. So that is why he ended up looking into his shield to see the reflection of where she was so then he could strike out and destroy her. Well, what does it mean? The shield allows you to look at evil without letting it destroy you, right? So you can fight back against it, so you can wipe it out. And that is what Bradbury is telling us science fiction can do. It gives us the chance to look at those very difficult truths without being undone by them. So the keynote that I gave went in a lot of different directions and did several different things. But what I'd like to focus on here is that I explored what I considered to be some very contemporary examples of how science fiction provides a reflecting shield so that we can look at evil without letting it destroy us, and therefore we can fight back against it. So I took a page from Bradbury's work. He pulled from his hometown Waukegan, Illinois, in so many of his works. Sometimes it's Waukegan, sometimes it's a fictional place, but if you read enough Bradbury, you see that so much of what he did was influenced by his experience and his memories of Waukegan. So, following Bradbury's lead, and given that this is a huge topic, how science fiction can be a reflecting shield, I have to have some way to narrow that down in some fashion, then I'm going to pull from my own hometown and use that as a way to give some examples of science fiction performing this service for us. So my hometown is Tulsa, Oklahoma. I've actually lived in a total of six states in the United States over my life, but I consider Tulsa to be my hometown because that is where I grew up, spent most of my childhood and teens, and it was a wonderful place to grow up. In a way, Tulsa made me who I am. I remember having season tickets to the Tulsa Ballet Theater, which was co-created by the famous Mosselin Larkin of Eastern Shawnee and Peoria heritage, one of the so-called Five Moons, the Native American ballerinas from Oklahoma who gained international fame in the early 20th century. I remember being fascinated by my frequent trips to the Philbrook Museum of Art and once, when I was very young, before I was even in kindergarten, my parents took me to this night of an outdoor film on the gorgeous landscaped grounds of the museum. And there we saw Camelot. And it was such a magical thing for me, my introduction to Arthurian legend. And here was this beautiful film, and it seemed like there was no line of separation between the film itself and the grounds around me. It was magical, magical evening, and made a huge impact on me. And perhaps most of all, Starbase 21, the science fiction 
and uh, comics bookstore there in Tulsa, which was a kind of second home for me. <laughs> it also sponsored the annual science fiction convention there in Tulsa, and I would go religiously every year. My father and I, that was one of our special things to go do. And later, when my sister was old enough, she joined us, and we would go to Trek Expo, the science fiction convention. So Tulsa was a wonderful place to grow up. And though I haven't lived there in many, many years, I still have very fond and deep feelings for the city. But in a way, you can also see Tulsa as a kind of microcosm of some of the evils that my country and, in a larger scale, humanity uh, deals with, needs to deal with, I should say. Tulsa was known at one time as Magic City because it was the city that oil built. It was renowned for its stunning Art Deco architecture downtown. You can still go there and take tours just to see these amazing Art Deco buildings. And it was also known for the Greenwood District. Tulsa had and has many unresolved issues related to race, not least of which is the fact that Tulsa is built on the land that is properly, legally claimed by treaty by the Creek Nation. Now, at the start of the 20th century, Tulsa was a segregated city. And despite all of the obstacles that segregation put up, in front of the African-American community, the black section of town, the Greenwood District, nevertheless thrived. There were black doctors and dentists and attorneys and bankers. There were theaters and art and industry and entrepreneurship to the point that the Greenwood District was known across the country as Black Wall Street, one of the most financially successful, vibrant, and dynamic black communities in the country. And then something truly horrible happened. What I'm about to tell you wasn't just forgotten history or lost history. It was actively suppressed history. We were not taught about this in the Tulsa schools when I was growing up. And in fact, I had friends who tried to make this topic their subject for a History Day project. They went to the downtown Tulsa library, which boasted copies of all of the Tulsa newspapers in hard copy form. Again, this is before the days of the internet, because I'm old. <laughs> and my friends who had formed their own History Day team had asked for the newspapers from the dates on and around May 31st and June 1st of 1921. And they were given sections, back sections of those papers without the front pages. And they asked and said, well, what we really need are, are the front pages. And they were told those weren't available. And I remember when my friends were telling me about this, the sense of flesh-crawling chills that I got, realizing there was something people just didn't want us to know about. But I knew something about it because my great-grandparents lived in Tulsa at the time. My great-grandmother was pregnant with my grandfather at the time and remembered smoke in the air and whispers of bodies in the river. The Tulsa Race Massacre took place from May 31st to June 1st. A group of white Tulsans burned nearly 35 city blocks in Greenwood utterly destroying the prosperous area known as Black Wall Street. This left approximately 10,000 black Tulsans homeless and an unknown number dead. Right now, there are attempts in Tulsa to locate mass graves that would give some idea of who was killed 
and where those bodies ended up. According to Scott Ellsworth's lauded history, Death in a Promised Land, the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921, the Greenwood Riots represent one of the single most devastating moments of racial violence in a century of U.S. history. And today, Tulsans of all races are wrestling with the legacy of this tragedy. And the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission is trying to help the city come to terms with what happened and restore and repair and heal the wounds that it caused. So why am I telling you all of this about Tulsa? The Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921 is a bit of history that most people in the United States and around the world know nothing of. Some people do, however. And do you know how the popular consciousness first became aware of this tragedy and what it meant in the larger scope of United States history and the United States today. Well, it wasn't from historical monographs. It wasn't from professional historians in journals or, for that matter, politicians speaking to the people. The way that most people learned, if in fact they did learn, about the Tulsa Race Massacre up until now, has been through science fiction. And I want to give you two examples. The first came in the form of the best-selling House of Night series by the mother-daughter team of PC and Kristen Cast. The House of Night series was a 12-book series that ran from 2007 to 2014. It also led to four novellas, which were published between 2011 and 2014. Now there's a four-book spin-off series called Other World that was published from 2017 to 2020. And just a few weeks ago, the casts had a public Q&A with the producer who is adapting The House of Night to television, uh, bringing this New York Times best-selling series to the small screen. This series is, in fact, yes, about vampires, but there is a very science fictional turn to it. In the fictional world of House of Night, a small percentage of the world's teenagers are changed into vampires when adolescent hormones trigger a strand of what is otherwise junk DNA. The authors purposefully are drawing on a scientific explanation here to frame this series more as a science fictional kind of story. I first discovered the series when my sister told me, you've got to read this book. It's set in our high school, which in fact it was. In fact, they do mention one of my high school teachers. And I can navigate every hallway described in the opening of the first novel because the entire series is set in Tulsa. I write about how Tulsa is portrayed in an essay that I wrote called Reimagining Magic City, How the Casts Mythologized Tulsa. And that came out in a 2011 anthology called Nicks in the House of Night, Mythology, Folklore, and Religion in the PC and Kristen Cast Vampire Series. The casts also tap into the power of local history in their novels. And one of the features of these books that struck me most strongly is that the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921 is a presence there. In fact, you can really read the stressed and tense and problematic relationships between the vampires and the humans in Tulsa as an extended metaphor for race. In the book Betrayed, 2007, 
The main character, Zoe Redbird, who is herself a biracial character, tries to explain her plan for involving the vampire fledglings of the Dark Daughters and Sons in charity work in the local community. Uh, she basically says, you know, they don't feel comfortable with us, and that's out of ignorance. And if I just go there and say, hey, I'm here to help, let me be involved in what you're doing, they'll accept me and things will be better. And the House of Night's high priestess, Neferet, reminds her in the conversation they have about this, about the power of human fear and hatred. To explain the danger of prejudice, Neferet brings up the Tulsa Race Massacre. Neferet says to Zoe, those African-American humans were part of Tulsa, and Tulsa destroyed them. And her words really resonate deeply, because this is a very real story she's drawing on. But the heroine, Zoe, points out, it's not 1920 anymore. And in a way, the books are this extended plea. It's not 1920 anymore, is it? We're not going to let these things happen over and over again, are we? And I think one of the lasting impacts of this series, and it will become, no doubt, even more popular with a television adaptation, but... TravelOK.com now provides self-guided tours of Tulsa just based on these books because they had such a large following. And when I say large following, when the books were coming out in the original series, I was living in part in North Carolina, and I remember the local Barnes & Noble had a midnight release party for one of the books, in the same way that they had midnight release parties for Harry Potter. That's how popular The House of Night was. And the idea that it would lead people to come to Tulsa and see the places where the historical events took place, as well as the fictional ones described in the novels, that's a big deal. That's passing along this history and this conviction that maybe if we look at evil and we don't let it destroy us, we can, in fact, fix it. We can fight it, and we can make sure that history doesn't repeat itself again. Now, when I said people learned about the Tulsa Race Massacre through science fiction, you may have also been thinking of something a little more recent, and that is Watchmen. Watchmen, a superhero drama with a strong science fictional sensibility and heritage a limited television series that continues the 1986 DC Comics series Watchmen, created by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. The HBO adaptation began in 2019. If you've watched HBO's Watchmen, then you know that the very first scene of the very first episode begins during the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. And that imagery informs the rest of the entire series. It's so integral to the series and its message, in fact, that HBO and The Atlantic teamed up shortly after the series began to create a free webcomic that would explain in more detail the historical basis, the historical event that informed the episode. And the webcomic is called The Massacre of Black Wall Street, and it also came out in 2019. So Watchmen HBO and The Atlantic teamed up to make this free webcomic focused on the events that led up to the riots and what transpired afterward. And whether one watches Watchmen or not, that webcomic, as a source of information, is a great introduction to understanding the Tulsa Massacre of 1921. Also, I mentioned Philbrook earlier in my Memories of Tulsa. Well, Philbrook Museum of Art also debuted a new exhibit in January 2020 based on 
HBO's Watchmen. It's part of their Art Plus Impact series, and it included a conversation with Watchmen's set designer who created the 1921 Tulsa for that first episode. It also included Watchmen's director and producer and actor and Tulsa native Tim Blake Nelson, as well as professor, scholar Hannibal B. Johnson, who is the author of several books, including one on the Greenwood District, and the forthcoming 2020 book, Black Wall Street 100, An American City Grapples with Its Historical Racial Trauma. All of these events and things came out of Watchmen being willing to tackle this issue and also expose its viewers to this part of history that so many were unaware of. So whether readers are taking tours of Tulsa because of their love of the House of Night books, or viewers are reading webcomics or going to museum exhibits about the race massacre because they love a television adaptation of a comic series. The upshot is works of speculative fiction, and in this case science fiction, are holding up what Bradbury called a reflecting shield to allow us to look at something truly terrible without being utterly destroyed by it, and then, in confronting it, be able to strike back against what made those terrible things happen so that they won't happen again. And I find that to be a very encouraging and inspiring thing if we want to learn from the past rather than repeat it and if we want to work together to make tomorrow better. So there you have it. That is a part of my longer talk, inspired by Ray Bradbury and his description of the reflecting shield, and inspired also by the words of Anne Frank. Look at how a single candle can both defy and define the darkness. I think... Genre fiction can be a candle, and I think we, as genre fiction readers, can be candles as well. And with that, I will say I hope that all of you are safe and well, and your loved ones are as well, during this time of terrible pandemic, and my thoughts are with all of the Starship Sofa family. I wish you the best, and I thank you for your time today, and I look forward to joining you again soon when I will talk about something completely different when we take another look back at genre history. Thank you. And there you go. Amy, thank you so much. Honestly, it's, a, it's, a, it's just so nice to have you on still after all these years. So that is Starship Sova. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Everyone for kind of sticking with her, like I say, it's strange times, but we're still pushing out the stories and we're doing our best. New editor, Fred, there, going to leave her in a totally different direction. Oh, and up there's my wife. I've got to go. That's it. Time's out. Look after yourselves. Take good care. Thank you for listening. Anytime soon, can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio, I wanna talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from here. I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call At home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my 
signal getting through. Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. I wanna talk to you. Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 